listening to Nine to Thrive, a podcast about creating a life that doesn't suck. I'm your host, Janet McKenna-Lowry, and every week we talk about work, community, and creativity. Welcome to the show. This week is going to be a little different. It's going to be a reflect and review episode. I haven't taken the time to talk at all about why this podcast exists. I was in a job that was terrible. And and as a a colleague of mine said, nobody ever leaves a job. They only leave managers. That's exactly what it was, which was my colleagues were fantastic and my clients were terrific. And the management was a 40 hour plus nightmare. Plus, because even if I worked regular 40 hours, thinking about it and and having my energy just sort of absorbed by these people and their you know control issues or psychological issues was draining so i decided to go back to school and i applied to a masters of business administration course at trinity college dublin because uh it was one year program. So that was an advantage. So you only lose one year of work. And because it was in Ireland, which I've always loved, and I thought would be fun. And because it was a big move, it was a big thing to do. And right after I got accepted, I got laid off. So just as well. During the course of the year, one of our classes was a leadership class that required a reflection journal. And I had journaled at times in my life, but one of the things about journaling is I always kind of, I don't know, I, I, I felt like I was wasting time and I felt like I could never really see the point of it in some ways. But this year helped me rethink that, partly because it was an assignment. So what that means then is if it's an assignment, you go back and you look at the things you've written about. So what that taught me is that from here on, I'm scheduling in a little time every three months or so to sit back on a Sunday afternoon and and see whether there's any ideas, see whether there's anything I felt like I've grown, see whether there's anything that I thought of to do and forgot. So all those things, that's difficult for me because by nature, I'm much happier with things in electronic version so that I can do a search, which is quick. Um, but the act of writing turns out to be a very contemplative thing for me and I'm learning to value it. So I did the journal and that that's great. I still journal, but it did teach me the importance of reflection and having had three guests, I realized that I would like to look over and re-listen to them and think of a few things that they said that I really want to take away and do and things that I found super encouraging. So I limited it and it's been terrifically hard. I've limited it to five or six things for each person to talk about some, some, I guess some, (laughs) to say a business thing, key takeaways. Linda McInerney said something that I loved, which is if you're doing it the way it's been done, you're doing it wrong. And as a person who has spent loads of time reading and learning and going to various, you know, classes and things like that, that is a very big thing to remember that the way you do it 
is the way you do it. And the way someone else does it is the way they do it. She also pointed out that money is just a tool. And my podcast is about that balance of work, creativity, and community. And I wanted to make sure that it was clear that work is as important as the other two. Partly because it's work that you do, it's attention you spend, it's time you spend, but partly because money is, in fact, important. Those of us that have been in the arts world are often told we're gonna never have money. And that discourages a lot of people. And I don't think it's true, first of all. I do think it's damaging. And I think that as artists, a lot of times our response is to say, oh, well, that's not important then. That money is not important to me. And I think learning to parse out the difference between a cash grab that isn't true to you versus money, which keeps a roof over your head and gives you a nice, great new pair of sneakers and gets you dinner tonight. That's very different. You're allowed to have money and money is a tool. It's neither good nor bad. When we do that kind of um, rejection or overemphasis, we give money power and we don't need to. And then she said, and I thought this was a really lovely take on it, that every time she's asked for help, she's gotten incredible, deep relationships and assistance, and that the generosity of the world is far bigger than we ever think it is, and that the real currency is the generosity of the human spirit. So keeping that in mind on those times that you worry about money, I think is something to keep us going. She also comes down hard on the word failure or fail. Um, I've thought about just rethinking my definition, but she doesn't like it at all. She wants it out of there completely. That that what we think of as failure is just teaching you how to get to the next place and that it needs it's got a negative connotation that it should not have. And I think that happens all the time in self-talk where we berate ourselves for being failures as if that's the end of the story. And Linda maintains that it absolutely is not. And then she also talked a bit about procrastination, that rather than, again, rather than coming down hard on yourself for procrastinating or letting it let you spiral into uh, depression or, or sucking energy out of you, to learn to see it as something that your brain is doing to work something out, that maybe you're cleaning the bathroom because that's what you're meant to do right now. You will end up with a clean bathroom, but rather than spend the following time with anger at yourself, ask yourself what your brain needed to work out, which is a beautifully compassionate way to look at something that a lot of us struggle with and then hate ourselves for. I see it in myself, but I see it in people I know, and, and God knows I see it on social media all the time, and I think there's a different way to approach it, a way that's not nearly as self-destructive. So those are my five things for Linda. Then I talked to Horace Devores. The character of Horace is female. She's uh, sassy and terrific and very, very clear thinker on business. One of the things she said on the practical side is that the events that she runs are random. You can't tell audience size in advance. It's wonderful but stressful, and you just have to learn to trust to wait it out over the course of time. 
She also said that asking random people for general feedback is a nightmare. They'll tell you a hundred things you already know, and they'll give you well-meaning and kind feedback, but it's not useful. So the audience, she said, doesn't know why it comes or why it doesn't come to a given show. But instead, try to figure it out and talk to people who already do similar things to what you do, which is a nice relationship building thing as well. But it's also informative and you'll be able to learn more about how to set up your things or maybe to avoid some pitfalls. Or at least, at the very least, you'll get somebody that you can, you know, share some stories with. She said that she finds that the work that she does feeds her spirit and is spiritually rewarding and that you have to keep faith in what you're doing because nobody else will. I loved that. I I thought that that was an important thing to center in the things you want to do. So if there's some creative thing, you've always wanted to learn how to draw, you've always wanted to um, do a gallery show once you learned how to draw, you've always wanted to have faith in it, and you have to think of it as feeding your spirit. And that is as important as feeding your stomach. It's not more important, but it's as important. And then another thing that was really practical that that I thought was something that I didn't really think about, but I think is incredibly helpful, don't start anything new until your current things are self-sufficient. So I just spent a year studying business, and of course I've been working in businesses for many, many years, and that is a repeated downfall of not only small places you never heard of, but huge corporations that we covered in my business degree. A lot, a lot of people and places are, they succumb to something that I call shiny happy new syndrome, which is we'll just buy this new thing and it will save us. We are tired of our old thing and we're frustrated with making it work, but we don't want to kill it and we don't want to fix it. So we'll just buy something new and it never, I'm going to say it never works. It never works. It never works because it works so seldom then I'm going to say never. And I'm also going to say it doesn't really work because even if it sort of works, even if it works for the bottom line for a while, it often destroys cohesion of the team that does the work. And so that's an aspect of it didn't work. A lot of times, at least in business, if the bottom line improved, it's considered a success. And I believe that that is a ridiculously limited version of success that if you leave behind a ton of human or environmental debris and then have to recover from that which is expensive it's not it, it it's not something that necessarily shows up depending on how you you know present your bottom line but it is a cost and it does often end up costing more in the long in the long run and even the medium run just for a short-term success. So I think that's really, I think that's a really um, important thing. And I actually think it's something that should be put on needlepoint and uh, hung up in lots and lots and lots of places that do business. Don't start anything new until the current things are self-sufficient. It's also a good message about where you put your energy. So Horace talked about fear, as did Linda McInerney. Um, 
Horace's, uh, the talk with Horace about fear was interesting in particular to me because she is an empresario of drag and burlesque. And burlesque means people getting naked in public or as close to naked as is legal. And uh, it occurred to me that the fear of that is it's a lot more than public speaking. It's public speaking is bigger than the fear of death. So she found that people are eager to go or should be going at their own pace. Some are very eager. And uh, other people need to think about it. But what, the way that she approaches it is, what are your expectations of beauty and sexiness and performance? And where is your most authentic part of yourself? Embrace it, own it, and show it. That you can't be empowered if you're not willing to show your authentic self. So that is gorgeous. And I was really moved hearing it and it's stuck with me a lot about uh what do what do we I mean really what do we think of ourselves and what do we show the world and whether or not we actually get stripped down to pasties and a g-string on stage what are we presenting and what are we presenting to ourselves those are all pretty profound questions that came out of this talk and then what she left me with was this Stick to it. If you want to do a thing and you think it can be successful, just do it. Go for it. Risks, risk something on it. No one is going to drop it in your lap. You have to just move on it. And I loved that because she was my second episode for this podcast and it was just starting out and people have been so kind and generous with their time. And this, I felt, I, I felt like this was so encouraging and, uh, you know, I, I've had a I've had a history myself of starting projects that I thought were a good idea, then getting discouraged. So this felt like really encouraging to me, and and I want to pass it on to you. If you want to do a thing and you think it can be successful, just go do it. Just go do it. My third guest was Allison Jean Lester. Some really interesting takeaways from her. Again, picking five is agony, but she was a letter writer first, and as someone who always kind of thought I'd like to write but had a hard time feeling like getting started. That was a very interesting way to approach it. That That's how she considers her, her writing life to have started was letters. So if that's something that you're interested in, if you've always wanted to write a book, try writing letters first and seeing if that gets you where you need to be. Another very practical piece of advice she had was to really work on writing. She takes herself away to places where she can't be distracted. That distraction for a lot of us is, you know, is, is what we practice. It's, it's pretty much, it's pretty much the job we take on is to be distracted. So to think about it in terms of, okay, well, let's accept that, but let's go somewhere where we can't be distracted. It takes an effort of will, um, but it pays off. And that was good to know. She also likes to make her own fun. And that's how, why she continues to do things like improv and teaching. Um, and I liked that. I liked the idea of, you know, find a way to play and then go do it. Uh, which I think is very important for people to, you know, you get so bogged down in the work and even the work of creativity or your regular work and never getting to creativity that the idea of making your own fun is very appealing and then she also suggested that in terms of self-promotion, think about a team and blow the team's horn, both in a corporate environment, 
if you're working in that as in that way, or if you're working as a creative in terms of your champions and in terms of the people who have encouraged you, you have to be ready to be someone else's champion. If you want one, you must like what they do and develop those relationships and listen to them. That is a very lovely, practical way of moving yourself forward. So those are some takeaways from my first three guests. I cannot tell you how grateful I am for them to give me their time and their insights. I felt like I was just a sponge soaking it in. I really, I, all last year when I was a student, I found, I met people whose backgrounds were so interesting and so different from mine. I mean, obviously you do that through life, but it's really a, it's really intense when you're in a classroom day to day with, with these people. They were from all over the world. They just were extraordinary people with extraordinary lives. But because it was a business uh, program, the emphasis was on what they did for pay and what as if that defined them. In fact, for many years, I've tried to stay away from asking people, what do you do? And I asked them, what do you like to do? And I kept going with that all year. I, I went to... I believe all of my classmates, I think I ended up getting all of them. At some point or another, I would be chatting with them and I'd say, oh, I have to ask you my question. What do you like to do? And not not what do you do for work? Sometimes it was the same thing. Sometimes, sadly, it was the same thing. Like some people were just like, I like to make money. That's all I like to do. And it felt sad. Um, maybe it isn't. Maybe it's aligned with, with who they are, but there's so much beauty and there's so much fun out there and none of them sounded like they were having any fun. But most of them had something else up their sleeve that was delightful to hear about and, and delightful to see them light up about. I think that's the part that I really liked. It was really like, it was really turn, turning on a light with, with people. And I loved that. So this podcast came out of that. I, I really wanted to find out more about people and a couple different different parts of people. Really the iceberg below the part that we can see. And um, I'm always interested in creativity. I think we need it. I don't think there's any point in making money if you have nothing fun that you do and nothing that you're interested in. And I think there's no point making something interesting if you die of starvation. And then the third part of this actually came from um, a psychologist called Alfred Adler. I learned about him from a friend a couple years ago and then kept finding his name coming up in other people's work. And it's a nice way to approach like a full life. Adler suggests that we need community to be happy. I found that a lot of the stuff he talks about with uh, how children learn that a lot of times a misbehaving child is a discouraged child. That's a beautiful way to approach misbehavior. And I actually found it to really work as a good lens all year long, you know, with difficult team members uh, in my program, it became, well, what's, what's discouraging you here? What's preventing you from being part of the group? And that is a much more, effective way to deal with conflict than to just sort of buy into the 
well, you're a jerk. Well, you're a jerk. What's discouraging here? That was very helpful. So that's how the third piece of this podcast came to be. Work, because it's important. Creativity, because it's just as important. Community, because it's just as important. Now, there's other things I could put in. The concept of Ikigai in um, Japan, look it up. I-K-I-G-A-I, I think is how it's spelled. That's something that also had to do with this, which is um, how you build meaning and purpose into your life and a balanced life. I actually argue that the, the three things that I've picked are a full Venn diagram with meaning. That if you have creativity and you are able to pay rent and you are part of a community, that your purpose becomes clear. I might be wrong, of course, but that's what I've found so far. The second part of this reflect and review episode is the review part. There are so many books and blogs and videos that are helpful. And let me know if you find them helpful. Because I think if you do, it's good to pass them on to other people. The book I'm going to review had a huge impact on me beyond anything I've looked at or read for maybe ever, maybe for years. It's called How Emotions Are Made, The Secret Life of the Brain. I always end up calling it the brain book. I'm reviewing it now. I may well come back to it because it is packed full of information. It is just incredible. So I used to walk at lunchtime on a bike path near where I used to work, and I would listen to podcasts. And one of them was Invisibilia, and there was an episode called Emotion, which I can recommend to you. It's very interesting. They talked about emotions that only some cultures feel, which is interesting. And they went into a very sad legal case. But then they talked about this book called How Emotions Are Made, The Secret Life of the Brain by Lisa Feldman Barrett. I was so intrigued that the minute I got back from lunch, I ordered a copy. And since then, I've reread it multiple times and I keep giving it away and buying new ones. Barrett is a university distinguished professor of psychology and director of the Interdisciplinary Effective Science Laboratory at Northeastern University, research scientist at NEU's Department of Psychiatry, and research neuroscientist at the Department of Radiology at Massachusetts General Hospital. So she, oh, and she's also a lecturer at psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. So she is a legitimate heavy hitter. And if you'll notice, She's half in the psychology field and half in the neurology field, and I love that. The book begins with a thorough debunking of the what she calls the classical view of emotions, that they're universal, that they're replicable, and then she moves in through an idea of how the brain learns and talks about how, the, how it learns how to have emotions, and in the end, we get this better understanding about how our brain functions as a body part. And along the way, some lovely observations about dogs. So I was hooked. The book had an enormous, profound impact on me for a couple of reasons. First, it is credible science, supported science. And that is important, and I value it. I've had to deal with myself not to get mired in like nonsense that has no depth of foundation. I feel like it corrupts my mind's hard drive. Secondly, I saw, I spent a lot of time with children over the years and I saw what she was talking about in the time that I have spent with children. Her observations about how we learn are boots on the ground, bone deep, true. 
if you hang out with early learners for a while after you read the book, see it. You you'll see it. You'll it's it's really really interesting how it so much better reflects the act of learning than other philosophies. Essentially, I guess. Third, I have personally changed how I think about how I think because of reading this book. And I began meditating as a result of the book. And that has led to better self-regulation, better emotional regulation, more purpose, and more peace in how I look at the world. Like I am just much more at peace than I was before learning what I did from this book. My own background is a very chaotic uh, childhood. I survived a constant storm of um, catastrophic emotion all the time. And the book helped re-narratize that as a lesson that was learned and that these lessons are unhelpful and you can unlearn them. So the, the, the three things I'm going to talk about that I learned from it. Um, there's more, so I'll come back to it at some point, but the most, the, the three things that come to mind first was this, this whole theory of how emotions are constructed. We talk about them like they're a thing. And we also talk about them like they live in one place in the brain so that you can have a source in your brain for anger. There's a lot of talk about that. And we also talk about them as if it's universal. And that's how Barrett started her, um, her studies was, are they universal? And they're not. Different cultures perceive and express anger differently. But also, we perceive and express anger differently. It's all contextual. And just like they've been finding out about memories, it's all generated at once. It doesn't live somewhere in your brain. It's created every time you have an experience. So you've learned. And a really interesting piece about that is you've learned what anger means, and that's cultural. So somebody can be mad about something that was done to them, but they can be mad about something that they did. Those are two different kinds of mad and their expression is not universal and it's not destiny. It's very, very interesting. It's, and, and if you have any questions about this, read the book. I can't defend the book necessarily as, as someone who did anything more than read and learn from it, but boy, do I recommend it. A really good example is what's the difference between a mug and a pitcher. There's a size difference, sure, but we know that the mug is for drinking out of, and we know that the pitcher is for pouring out of. We know them as different things. We've learned that from somebody, because they're not really different things. They're similar shapes. They have a handle. They hold things. One holds a lot. One holds a little. When you think about it, they're not different only that we have learned that they are different or have different uses. It's all, so our emotions work the same way and we learn them. And the book also, I found that it had parallels with uh, some other things I had read. Uh, there's a, a award-winning book called Nudge by um, 
Thaler and Sunstein, and Thaler won the Nobel Prize last uh, in 2017. They talk about biases and how your brain learns things incredibly easily, incredibly fast. Our brains are, I, I never had such an appreciation of this couple of pounds sitting in my head until I read Barrett's book. But our brains are unbelievably gifted at learning. That's something that Nudge points out. And, and Nudge also talks about how terrible we are at, at reflecting on that learning and unlearning something that we already think we know. And this Barrett's book also brought in that the unlearning piece is often the most difficult because when we've learned something, we often then shelve it as a belief. And we are certain that that belief is true. And to relearn something that we thought was true and learn that it is not can be very, very difficult for us. It's, it's, how, it's why habits are so difficult to break. But it is really nice once you know how the brain uh, appears to work, like when you see all these, these ways in which it works, it actually really helps to know that because it helps, it, it changes your beliefs about what you're now able to unbelieve. It's crazy, but it's, that's what it is. One of the things, so, so that's, that's all I can say about that. Go read it and see whether, whether it speaks to you. Cause I found it just unbelievably cool. The four things that your brain actually tracks was really, really interesting to me. So your brain does have four feelings of its own, and these are um, evident at birth, right? So sometimes people t say that a crying baby is angry, but it's not. It doesn't know what anger is, but it does have feelings. It has four feelings as as a, as an animal, as we because we're all animals, and the four feelings are pleasant, unpleasant, stimulated, and calm. All the other emotional constructs we have fit into those four things and are associated with one of those four body states. I found that to be so calming, a concept. Like I can handle four, and I can handle shifting around concepts if they're in one but should be in another. I that's that's doable. Like that's that's doable. <laughs> I found that to be a, a just a lovely way to think about stuff. And she said that, you know, a lot of times we're tourists in, in various quadrants, right? So when you watch a horror movie, you're a tourist in the stimulated, um, fearful area, right? Or the right, unpleasant, un, un, well, you might find it pleasant though. Anyway, you can figure that out with your own. But that a lot of times uh, younger people who are adrenaline junkies are in one quadrant and that as you grow and become a fully mature adult, you tend to like being in calm and pleasant as much as possible. That's where you want to, that's where you really want to be, which also rang true. And then the third thing I want to talk about from the book this time was the brain as an actual part of the body. We tend not to think about that. Like the, when you think about it, the brain is the only organ that tells stories about itself. That's amazing. That's another one of those places where I just got a huge appreciation for being human. That's amazing. We tell ourselves stories from a brain that tells the story of itself. It doesn't always get it right, by the way, which is where Barrett's work comes in because she's looking at 
things like where the neurons are firing and, and what activity is happening, and she can see that visually. Although, of course, we tell ourselves what's happening visually, so it just it becomes kind of a image within an image within an image. But if you go back to thinking about the brain as an organ, one of the things it must do to remain functional is get energy. And it gets energy by uptaking glucose, right? So it takes up sugar in order to have energy, just like the rest of your body does, just like the liver does, just like the heart, just like the muscles that hold, you know, your your knee with your lower leg, whatever. All these things need glucose to function. So here's what I loved about this. The brain regulates its own glucose. And because we're social animals and because our learning affects our brain, our brain uptakes glucose according to things that it's learned. So there's an old piece of folk wisdom, kind of a proverb, that a hill is easier to climb if you climb it with friends. And one of the really interesting things about Barrett's work is that's true. Your glucose demand on your body, by your brain, is lower when you are with friends doing a difficult activity than when you are doing it on your own. So it is literally true that the hill feels less daunting, less difficult if you are with friends. That's amazing. That is just wonderful, and it really points out the need for social interaction, for cultivating relationships. We physically need it. Now, we knew that in some ways, right? A lot of times they talk about how loneliness causes heart attacks. This is just another another piece of evidence to that. And, of course, like I said, she talks about a few lovely things about dogs, and that is that a dog counts as social interaction. A hill is more manageable when you climb it with your dog and your dog is helping your brain regulate glucose uptake and you are helping your dog regulate glucose uptake and we regulate with everybody we love and that that is what what contributes to the physical uh, symptoms of grief when you have when you lose someone close to you it physically affects how you regulate the energy in your body your glucose uptake is disrupted and you have to take time and be gentle with yourself as your body relearns how to function without them I just thought that was, um, I, I, it's, I don't even have words for it. It's just gorgeous. It, it's just so interesting. And to see the, to see the sources behind it, to see what kind of experiments she ran to come to that conclusion, I just found it amazing. And if anything, the whole book has made me hyper aware of the construction of emotions. If my emotions are constructed, they're still real right? They're still real in the way that money or race is real. It's a construction 
but it affects me, right? Because my brain has made this construction, my brain responds to it with either glucose uptake or uh, flooding me with dopamine, any of these kinds of things, or releasing any brain chemicals. So they are real, but what are they? So then one of the things, one of the upshots about this book is it's really made me kind of stop and ask myself, when I notice my feelings or when I honor my feelings, how do I really feel? It's it's brought up some really interesting questions. Um, and in the moment, a lot of times I have to kind of, you know, come back to it to try to figure out how I really do feel. I've talked about three things and how emotions are made because three is a very manageable number for me. But in a year or so, I will circle back to this book because there is so much in it and because I need other people to read about it and talk to me about it. I've uh, I've given it away to a bunch of people. Uh, one of them's read it. We haven't gotten together for a book chat yet. I've, I've given it to my kids, uh, which of course means that they're not thrilled with having, you know, a book assigned to them long after they homeschooled with me. But um, sooner or later, they'll read it and we'll be able to talk about it. But I want to hear from you if you if you've had a chance to read it, I would love uh, I'd love to touch base and find out what you think about it. And uh notice that I said talk with and not argue about because I didn't do the research, but I did find the book to be very well documented and I nannied, I raised and homeschooled children, I've taught adults. It it rings really 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 true with me. So in the year since I've read it, I've made an effort and it is an effort to look at how my ideas and beliefs are constructed and how my family and my teachers, I was a very compliant little student, shared and associated their concepts as well as what I've gone on to do with myself to myself. And honestly, I'm only really concerned with the damaging ones. I'm fine that a mug and a glass pitcher are separate concepts, but I don't really need to think about that. More trouble to me though, has been learning a belief and not examining it, that the future is bleak, that our work is unworthy, and that only the fortunate get to have a good life. My mother saw herself from the outside. That that was one of the results of her mental illness is that she saw herself as paranoid and she saw the world as hostile. And although I was aware of it, I and I thought that I shook that off when I left her house, I've really mindlessly practiced and indulged comparing myself with others and coming up short and discouraged. And I got really good at that practice. And it prevented me from getting good at getting good. And I am so happy that the news is that I'm not a ship that has to turn around. I'm a Roomba. When I find this, I can just bump it and turn it around. And I couldn't be happier. That's my reflection and review episode. The last thing I'm going to do is just tell you what tabs I have open. And you're lucky because some days I'll have 60, although I won't go all through them. I'll just go through the interesting ones. But um, it's kind of a, it's it's usually a reflection of where I'm at right now. I have inverse.com, which I found, which is about science. And the area that I'm looking at is fake news study. So a study about what fake news is raises issues about religious fundamentalists and dogmatism. Importantly, you can keep others from falling for fake news. So I'll get it. I'll read that sometime today. From the same, I have a couple from the same source, uh, inverse.com also, why shared vibrations may be the root of all consciousness. I want to read that. 
because on the one hand, it sounds plausible. On the other hand, it sounds unbelievably new age. So we'll see. And the third one I have on this one is the perfect morning ritual according to science. I'm a sucker for those articles and uh, sometimes I read them and sometimes I don't. But this time I absolutely will because the author is Eric Barker. And Eric Barker does a blog that I encourage you to read and I will review it at some point called Barking Up the Wrong Tree. And all the stuff he does is undergirded by evidence and science and Actually, the fact that he is writing on Inverse.com makes me trust Inverse.com a bit more. I also have a New York Times article that I'm halfway through called, What if the placebo effect isn't a trick? New research is zeroing in on a biochemical basis for the placebo effect, possibly opening a Pandora's box for Western medicine. I am so here for this. I actually once asked a bunch of medical personnel this question. I said, you know, back in the olden days when they bled people, so they'd, they'd, you'd be sick and the doctor would come. They couldn't do much. So they would open a vein and bleed you out. It had to do with medieval ideas of medicine. And I said, why would you keep doing this, right? We always look back on it like, oh, those people in the past, they were so stupid. That medicine was brutal. But my thought was it must have looked like it worked sometimes. In other words, if it always killed you, they'd stop doing it. They actually were not even remotely stupid. They were um, frequently more worldly and better read than we are, and they certainly had better better understanding of a lot of kinds of history. So why did they think that it worked? Everyone told me that thought about it, that had an answer for me, suggested that it was probably the placebo effect, that in fact lots of things work using the placebo effect. All that time, enough of a percentage responded positively via the placebo effect to make that a useful enough practice. I think that's fascinating. And it's just amazing. Anyway, so that's what I'm reading about. I'm halfway through that. It's incredible. And that's my tabs. I hope you are well. I hope that you enjoy the podcast. And I hope that you can find the kind of inspiration from people as I've been doing. It's been so much fun. And I'm so excited to find out about the other parts of their lives besides the ones I know about. Be well. That's it for this week's nine to thrive podcast. Be sure to visit working9tothrive.com, that's with the number 9, to access links, info, and to join the conversation. We're on Twitter, at 9tothrive, and Facebook, at Working9tothrive. Thanks for listening.